subject of the talk this evening is from ignorance come impulses. You may recognize these as the first two links of dependent origination, which Sally talked about uh, last week. And the way it's often translated is uh, ignorance gives rise to volitional formations. Ignorance gives rise to mental formations. But I like this translation of impulses because it kind of describes the inner feeling of the way these things arise in the mind. The formations that come based in ignorance are kind of impulsive. They're not considered, they're not deliberated, they're not uh, uh, held with wisdom, but they just emerge in this uh, impulsive, sometimes compulsive way. So impulses is another way to translate uh, volitional formations or mental formations. The Pali of this has a nice ring to it. It says, avijja pachaya sankara. The Pali is very succinct, avijja pachaya sankara. Avijja is ignorance. Um, it basically means not knowing the way things really are. In Sally's talk and the handout that you got in the picture of the circle, this was the blind man at 12 o'clock. This is where everything starts from. So somebody uh, wrote Sally a note saying that they'd posted the, the picture of Mr. Yama on their, on their mirror and were looking at it daily. So that's where Yama is, where, sorry, where the blind man is, is at 12 o'clock in the very center, the beginning point of things. Just as a, a digression, the first time I saw that painting was when I was a monk in Thailand. It was quite interesting because it comes out of the uh, Tibetan tradition. But um, I was practicing with a very eclectic Theravadan monk named Ajahn Buddhadasa. Ajahn Buddhadasa established a monastery called Wat Swan Mok in the south of Thailand, which translates as the Garden of Liberation. And it was a beautiful place to practice. And he was one of the most open-minded um, Theravadan monks that I've, I've ever met. He learned Pali and read through the Buddha suttas as a young monk. And he said he completely overturned the conventional interpretations that he had been taught uh, in monk school by his own reading. And because of his iconoclasm, iconoclasm he, was, um, he had a hard time getting on with some of the mainstream monks in Thailand until he became much older and was well-respected. But at the time that I was practicing there, he was established and respected, but he was so open. He had a hall that they had built specially called the Spiritual Theater. And in the Spiritual Theater, he had reproductions of works of art from all three traditions. There were Zen, reproductions of Zen paintings, reproductions of Tibetan tankas, and original Theravadan art there. I really appreciate his, uh, his spirit, and it's uh, in that spirit that we share this, this painting of uh, the Bhava Chakra, the Wheel of Existence. So avijja is at the start. It's considered the, the root, the first link in the chain from which suffering arises. Another synonym for it could be delusion, when we talk about the kalesas of greed, aversion, and delusion. This is sort of a synonym for uh, ignorance. 
Because it is a root in the chain, it is considered one of the deepest tendencies of mind and one that does not leave the mind until full awakening. So as long as there is ignorance in the mind, suffering will, uh, suffering will result eventually. The second word, pachaya, is the word that's used throughout to establish the connection between uh, the consecutive links in dependent origination. Pachaya means uh, something like conditions. Um, you could say the first link is a, a conditional factor for the arising of the second link. It's not quite accurate to say it causes it. I think Sally mentioned that. That's too strong a correlation, but it's a, a necessary condition for the arising of the next link. The next link is Sankara. This is the same word as the fourth aggregate in the list of five aggregates. Mental formations, volitional formations, urges, or impulses. In the drawing um, of dependent origination, this is symbolized by a potter who's fashioning pots out of clay. And those pots being made out of clay symbolize the fabricated or constructed nature of sankharas. They're put together out of some kind of will, some kind of effort. So the meaning of these two links, avijja, pachaya, sankhara, is that when ignorance is in the mind, the mind gives rise to these impulses that generally contribute toward the furthering of suffering. And that means the impulses themselves are tinged with the quality of ignorance. The common ones, as I'm sure you can imagine, are the forces of greed and aversion. The forces of desire and hatred are the typical ones that embody this movement from ignorance. Sankaras, if you'll remember from the aggregates, refers to actions in three uh, spheres of body, speech, and mind. So we look at bodily actions, we look at uh, actions of speech, and we look at thoughts and emotions. These are all included in the uh, range of sankara. So when ignorance is present in the mind, you can expect that impulses based on greed and aversion will arise. Or another way to say it is that craving will arise. Ajahn Sumedho put it uh, succinctly when he said, ignorance complicates everything. <laughs> and this is the flavor of these two links. Simple example, ignorance complicating things. This is a, a true story. A robber went into a bank and went up to a teller and handed them a note that said, give me all your money, I have a gun. So the teller simply complied. The robber took the money, drove away, and went home. And when the robber got home, the police were waiting at his front door. How did they catch him so quickly? The note was written on one of his bank deposit slips, which listed his address. Ignorance complicates everything. When we act out of greed and aversion and we hurt others, then we might say we leave a karmic deposit slip with them because in some way we end up hurting ourselves from that. But as our friend Sylvia Borstein says, when we see clearly, we act impeccably. When wisdom is in the mind, when ignorance is weak, 
then our actions are clear. These impulses don't just run away with us. So on a personal level, we can understand these impulses and their impact. On a global level, we see that they are responsible for so much pain and suffering in the world, really all the pain and suffering in the world. Two simple examples of our time. I'm sure you all remember the financial crisis that was underway when we started this retreat, whether you joined in September or in November. Financial crisis was ongoing and came out of bad mortgage loans. I just read an example the other day where a gardener in California making $14,000 a year was allowed to borrow money with no down payment to purchase a house worth $700,000. And this is such an amazing example of greed. Why, why would a banker do that? Because they make money off the loan, then they repackage it, bundle it with other mortgages, and sell it to some financial institution who bundles it with other kinds of investment and sells it to investors. So the bank has, has lost its exposure in that stupid transaction and passed the risk on to somebody else. It's just unfettered greed at work that has brought this crisis into being. And aversion or hatred, you know, one news flash that I'm sure you won't be surprised at is that uh, the terror attacks have not stopped in Iraq. So almost daily we read accounts of bombing, suicide bombings, and people being killed. And it's just the, the naked force of hatred, unchecked by compassion or reason, just acting out kind of unhindered on that, that big stage. So in small ways, through our own machinations of greed and aversion, on a global level, and the, the massive kind of destructions that happen in the world, ignorance is giving rise to impulses unchecked by wisdom. And this is the dynamic, as Sally explained, in dependent origination that keeps us on the wheel of suffering. And we'll go into it in a little more detail uh, further on. So let's talk a little bit more about this quality of ignorance and, and how it works. As I think you know from Sally's talk, ignorance is not about f the lack of facts. It's not that you don't know who the president of Zimbabwe is or you don't know how to conjugate verbs in Latin. That's not the kind of unknowing we're talking about. It's not knowing, as the Buddha said, the Four Noble Truths. It's not understanding really what leads to suffering and what leads to happiness. So just to remember these Four Noble Truths, the first says, the Buddha says, we need to fully understand the truth of dukkha. Fully understand the truth of dukkha. That means to see all of the manifestations in our lives of this quality of unsatisfactoriness. Because we are not liberated beings, we have not fully understood the truth of dukkha. Even though conceptually we may know the first noble truth, we haven't integrated that understanding, so we haven't fully understood it. As a result, then, we haven't relinquished this is the injunction of the second noble truth, we have not relinquished the cause of suffering, which is craving. So we can look in our own minds and see, yeah, I can check that out, it's true. I haven't completely relinquished craving yet. So if we had, 
we would also be fully enlightened. So that means that we haven't yet satisfied the third noble truth, which is to realize directly for ourselves the end of suffering and the end of craving. We haven't fully come there, and so we haven't yet completely practiced the way to the end of suffering of the Eightfold Path. So even though we can conceptually understand the Four Noble Truths, we haven't yet embodied the fullness um, of all their implications. So this is a core meaning of ignorance. We haven't come to realize the Four Noble Truths. Another way that it's held in the tradition is it means not understanding the three characteristics. We haven't fully appreciated the implications of impermanence. As was mentioned about the Four Noble Truths, we haven't fully imp uh, uh, integrated the implications of unsatisfactoriness, and we haven't fully integrated the teaching of not-self. Those continue to uh, cloud our perceptions, the fact that we don't see those three. As a shorthand for ignorance, the one that I come back to again and again, just when I'm thinking of this topic and wondering what it means, we haven't fully grokked the teaching of not-self. That's sort of what I hold for myself personally as the core of ignorance. We haven't fully grokked not-self. We still believe in I. We invest in I. We put energy into it. We care for it and so on. When we see through I, our motivations change. Really, I probably one of the things that you've seen from observing your thoughts for you know, four weeks or ten weeks is most of them have to do with I. And mostly it's about how can we make it better for this I. That's what most of our thoughts are about. So they're mostly expressions of self-centeredness and craving. The motivations in our life tend to reflect that. They also tend to be, how can I make things better for I? When our understanding changes, our motivation changes. Just as a simple example in practice terms, this quality of bodhicitta, sometimes translated as the awakening heart, is a really wonderful thing to bring in your dharma practice because it starts to make even our practice not completely self-centered. So notice that we can take that same kind of self-centered craving and apply it to practice. And we just become focused on my suffering, my happiness, my progress on the path, my delusion, my release, my wisdom, and so forth. We can approach practice with the same kind of gaining mind that we have in daily life. This beautiful quality of bodhicitta gives us a way to start to undo that self-centeredness in our very approach to meditation practice because we bring in the reflection that I practice to liberate my own mind as a way to help liberate the minds of other beings. It's the aspiration to come to our own awakening in order to serve other beings to help pull them out of suffering into their awakening. If we can start to make this a part of our, our motivation in practice, even if it's just a tiny flicker, it shows the way that we can transform self-centeredness even as we approach Dharma practice. It's very interesting the way this started to come through to me. I did a retreat where we were making this, this wish 
a part of every sitting. So at the start of every sitting, we would say to ourselves, or we would chant together, may I awaken for the benefit of all sentient beings. Some formulation like that. And in practicing in that way, day after day as the retreat deepened, that idea kind of uh, sank into me. At the same time, we were looking directly at the factor of ignorance or wisdom in the mind. And I started to see, as I was looking at ignorance and wisdom back and forth, back and forth, that how this quality of wisdom was shared among, among all humans, among all sentient beings. And this, this wisdom, which is part of our essential nature, has the ability to free us and to lead us to the deepest kind of happiness. And as I was reflecting on that and bodhicitta, something in my whole outlook shifted. Up to then, my practice had only been about, I want to remove the obscurations that veil the ignorance in this mind. And as I tuned into the fact that that same wisdom was available in every human mind, but it was just covered over by this layer of ignorance, I saw the game could be held very differently. And that game became, oh, what I'd really like to do is remove the obscurations to wisdom wherever it's being obscured. Seeing through the, the separation of separate bodies and seeing the commonality of this universal wisdom that we all have, the game became much bigger. So this is just a reflection I, I offer to you to perhaps bring into your own practice. Setting that intention regularly that we practice in order to bring all beings out of awaken, out of suffering. And we accomplish that first step through our own awakening. So this quality of ignorance where we're fixated on the idea of self and we act on it over and over strengthens our self-centeredness and it also ties us into suffering. To investigate this, to see this, take a look at your experience when suffering is present in your experience at some point. Take a look at the times when you're struggling and ask the question, what's the mind like in that state? So whenever there's suffering, there's some misunderstanding. If the Four Noble Truths had been penetrated with understanding, that suffering wouldn't be there. So whenever there's suffering, there's some level of delusion, confusion, not seeing, obscuration of wisdom. So what is it like when the mind is in that state? Is it peaceful? <laughs> is, it, is the mind quiet? Is everything cooled out? I mean, typically not. The state of suffering is usually a state of struggle where the thoughts tend to go into a swirl. There tends to be kind of an upheaval of thoughts and emotions and trying to figure out what to do and how to get out of this predicament and how I'm going to solve it and is it going to go on forever and how bad it is and judgments about ourselves and so forth. And as all this swirl of thoughts and feelings are going through, the tendency is to just keep grasping onto different ones. Let's try this. Maybe this is the way out. I'll investigate this solution. Maybe this will work. Because we don't know anything else. 
So that in itself is kind of a good example of the combination of ignorance and the swirl of formations. When we're in a state of delusion, that swirl of formations is all we kind of have to go with until we learn meditation practice and we understand how to be with that swirl with mindfulness. Then there's another option. But for the untrained mind, being landed in that kind of confusion and suffering just tends to generate more papancha, more thinking, and more emotions. The Buddha said that typically, for most people, suffering results in bewilderment or search. Bewilderment or search. And the search can be wise or unwise. It can be a search for happiness through sense pleasures. It can be a wise search for happiness through an authentic spiritual path. But this quality of bewilderment, I think, is something that most of us can relate to experiencing. When these hard times come along, one of the qualities tends to be this factor of confusion, of a sense of being lost, of being separated from home, of not being able to find peace or a resting place. This bewilderment is another synonym for uh, confusion or delusion. The Pali word is moha, and the literal meaning of it, uh, this is a third of the kilesas, greed, aversion, and delusion, moha, the literal meaning is stupefied. <laughs> so you might just reflect on that as you're in this state of confusion. It feels kind of stupefying. We really don't know where to go next. And then all the activities of greed and aversion are kind of supported by this confusion. You probably know that uh, in Buddhist thinking there are three personality types defined by greed, aversion, or delusion. Obviously, we all have all three, but as individuals, one or the other may predominate in our, uh, in our minds. So if one is predominant, say greed, one could be called a greedy type, a desire type. If hatred or aversion is predominant, one could be described as an aversive type. Um, if delusion is predominant of the three, one can be described as a deluded type. And then you can just look at how those personalities relate to the world to understand uh, the sort of mental effects of that particular kilesa. And what I find interesting is that all three of these are basically just different strategies for relating to suffering. The greedy type relates to, or call it the unsatisfactoriness of conditioned phenomena. The greedy type relates by trying to bring more and more pleasure in. If something has a pleasant appearance, let's keep it close so that our moment-to-moment -moment experience is filled up with pleasant things. That's the first strategy. The aversive type looks at the world and sees what's threatening and tries to keep that at bay. So the aversive type perceives the unpleasant, threatening phenomena and tries to push those away or create separation from the unpleasant. That's the second strategy. The third type, the delusion type, tries to create a fog around themselves so that nothing very much is felt. The pleasant is not felt so directly and the unpleasant is not felt directly, but rather everything's happening at a distance and so it doesn't touch very deeply. 
So if you get delusion types talking about their life experiences, it can be quite funny at times. Sally runs a program in California called the Dedicated Practitioners Program. It's a combination of a study, meditation, and experiential exercises. And as part of the study, she gets groups of people to come up on stage and talk about what it's like to be a greedy type, an aversive type, or a deluded type. And the, the comments are funniest with the deluded types. So one of the teachers of the retreat, I'm not going to name names, but he was self-confessed, said that he was a, a really classic deluded type and gave an example where his wife asked him to pick up a shopping bag and take it back to the store because he was going by and exchange it or return it because it wasn't what she had wanted. And in order to jog his memory, because she was very familiar that he was a deluded type, she put the bag in, in front of the front door so that he couldn't get out the door without tripping over it. So he wakes up in the morning in a little bit of a hurry to get going, walks to the front door, gently picks up the bag, puts it to the side of the door, opens the door, and walks out. That's a deluded type. They just don't get the message. Sharon Salzberg has told in many talks about her delusive temperaments. And one story that I love, so I'll just mention briefly in a very condensed form. She was teaching a three-month course one year and had driven to her home the night before and left her car in the driveway, got up the next morning to come over to uh, sit and do interviews. And as she walked over, she didn't see her car and thought, that's funny. Didn't I, didn't I park my car here last night? So that's the first sign of delusion, is not being able to quite remember if you parked your car here or not. And she came over and walked in the building and saw someone who might know where her car was and said to them, I can't find my car this morning. It's not where I left it last night. And his first question to her, knowing that she was a deluded type, was, are you sure? <laughs> And she said, well, the car is pretty big. You know, I think I, I think I would have seen it if it was there. But his very raising the question caused her to doubt whether the car was actually there or not. And that's another movement of the deluded mind. It turned out that somebody else had borrowed her car without telling her. So everything was OK. In delusion, we don't really stay in touch with our own experience, so we don't stay in touch with others' experience. And that's why delusion becomes a support for actions of greed and aversion. There's an element of denial at work. We don't see the impact of the wanting and disliking in our own mind, so we don't see the impact of our actions on others that um, are affected by it. How to come out of delusion. The simple practice of mindfulness is the direct path out of delusion. It's said that the proximate cause of non-delusion is wise attention. So every moment of connecting clearly to something that's real in the present moment is undoing the delusive tendency of mind. So that's one of the powers of this mindfulness practice. But I want to look a little more deeply into the interaction between ignorance and uh, sankharas. 
And I want to do it through looking at uh, what we could call three levels of obscuration in our experience. And you kind of look at the, how did we get to where we are? How did we get in this situation? And developmentally, it could be described as something like this. That at some point in the past, who knows when, we lost touch with the mind's essential nature, which you could call emptiness or you could call nibbana, that which is beyond change. We lost touch with that. And instead, we substituted for the direct seeing of emptiness, we substituted the sense of self as the core of what we take to be our identity. So when we create a sense of self in a world that is manifold, we also create a sense of other. So this is the fundamental, or you could say the first level of obscuration. We lose touch with our uh, essential nature of emptiness, and we create a fictitious duality between self and other. And in that, uh, we establish the I. So once we've established the I, then we have to defend it against the other, or we use the other to feed it, nourish it. So on the one hand, it sets up protection from what is unpleasant or threatening. On the other hand, it sets up a wanting to feed or nourish with what's pleasant. Of course, the problem with that is that that activity is unending. Once we've established the eye, it can never be fully protected once and for all, and it can never be fully fed once and for all. So we have to keep recreating, sustaining this sense of I. So this basic ignorance and the fictitious creation of self and other embroils us in an unending activity of protecting and feeding. So this is the first level of obscuration, the false sense of self and thereby also other. So the second layer of obscuration that comes up is as we engage in this ongoing activity, this endless activity, we're developing it through these twin forces of greed and aversion. So on top of the basic ignorance come the feeding and protecting activities of the mind. Once we get involved in these, uh, this approach to the world, which seeks to feed and protect through liking and disliking, that becomes the basis for all the other emotions. You know, I think we've said before that all the afflictive emotions of pride and fear and jealousy and loneliness and grief and anger all come out of different combinations of greed, aversion, and this basic ignorance. So as we involve ourselves, we commit to this feeding and sustaining project, we start to generate all the afflictive emotions. In one Buddhist tradition, they say there are 84,000 of these. But that was a long time ago. You know, now there are at least 168,000, I'm sure. So all of this is built up on having constructed an identity as self. 
And you take a look at the, the way that normal life is experienced by most human beings across the globe, and you see that the, the content of their minds is filled with this kind of activity. It's filled with this unending flow of self-referencing thoughts and afflictive emotions over and over and over again. And this is the state that we find ourselves in when we sit down in meditation and start to take a look. That's why one teacher said self-knowledge is not good news. <laughs> so this is the second level of obscuration. This swirl of emotions and grasping and clinging creates a sense of confusion in the mind and we can no longer see clearly. As you know, when greed and aversion are active, we don't see things the way they are. But then this leads to the third level of veil or obscuration as we're tormented by these afflictive emotions generated in response to the world, the other, we start to act in ways that are unskillful. When we act out of greed without considering it, we harm others. When we act out of aversion or hatred without considering it, we harm others. These forms of harm create another layer of obscuration, which we could call the obscuration of actions or karmic obscurations. And that is, when we've been involved in unskillful actions for some time, they create an additional clouding in the mind. In the first place, we're generally not very happy to admit what we've done. We're not very happy to see the effect on ourselves and see the effect on others. So there comes in another layer of denial or delusion about the truth of our own actions and their impact on other people. And this is a fuller picture of where most of us are at when we enter meditation. We have the initial veil of losing our essential nature and the misunderstanding of self and other. We have the, built on that, these formations of greed and aversion and the manifestation of the afflictive emotions and the confusion they bring. And on top of that, we have the layer of unskillful actions that we may have committed in our life when we didn't really understand. Because in, in hurting others, of course, we end up hurting ourselves. Because deep, deep down in the unconscious, there's some part of ourselves that knows that that duality has never been true. There's some part of the mind that knows that self and other is a false distinction. And so we know on some level that hurting others is hurting ourselves. And it's certainly true uh, karmically. I want to read uh, from uh, Sutta in the Majjhima Nikaya. This is Majjhima 46, where the Buddha draws out the effects of these unskillful actions. And if you look closely, unskillful actions will come either from aversion or from greed. These are the two motivating forces that lead to unskillfulness. So some obvious examples uh, coming from aversion, uh, killing beings who have uh, annoyed us, 
You know, a simple example of just squashing an insect. A bigger example of the uh, violence of murder and, uh, and killing of human beings that are in the world coming out of hatred. On a more mundane level in our daily lives, uh, angry speech comes out of uh, this motivation of aversion and one of the most hurtful things that, that goes on in, in our daily lives. The Buddha talked about these kinds of actions as painful now and ripening in the future as pain. And they, they're supported by the ignorance that doesn't understand how this works. The false sense of duality, the distancing ourselves, the disconnection of delusion that doesn't feel what's going on in our own mind and doesn't feel the impact on others. Now bhikkhus, one who is ignorant, not knowing this way of undertaking things that is painful now and ripens in the future as pain, does not understand as it actually is thus. This way of undertaking things is painful now and ripens in the future as pain. Not knowing it, not understanding it as it actually is, the ignorant one cultivates it and does not avoid it. Because they do so, unwished for, undesired, disagreeable things increase for them, and wished for, desired, agreeable things diminish. Why is that? That is what happens to one who does not see. So then he continues with a, uh, a simile of pain now ripening in pain later. Bhikkhus, suppose there were a bitter gourd mixed with poison, and a man came who wanted to live, not to die, who wanted pleasure and recoiled from pain, and they told him, good man, this bitter gourd is mixed with poison. Drink from it if you want. As you drink from it, its color, smell, and taste will not agree with you. And after drinking from it, you will come to death or deadly suffering. Then he drank from it without reflecting and did not relinquish it. As he drank from it, its color, smell, and taste did not agree with him. And after drinking from it, he came to death or deadly suffering. Similar to that, I say, is the way of undertaking things that is painful now and ripens in the future is pain. So this is one way that we do unskillful actions based in hatred or aversion. There's another way that we do unskillful actions which is based in greed. And some simple or obvious examples of that are overindulgence in drugs or alcohol and uh, violating the precept on sexual misconduct drawn out of sexual desire. So the Buddha talked about this as actions that are pleasant now, but ripen later in pain. And here's the reading from the same sutta on this quality. Now bhikkhus, one who is ignorant, not knowing this way of undertaking things that is pleasant now and ripens in the future as pain, does not understand as it actually is thus. This way of undertaking things is pleasant now and ripens in the future as pain. Not knowing it, not understanding it as it actually is, the ignorant one cultivates it and does not avoid it. Because they do so, unwished for things increase for them and wished for things diminish. Why is that? 
That is, happen that is what happens to one who does not see. And he offers a, a simile for this way of undertaking also. Suppose there were a bronze cup of beverage possessing a good color, smell, and taste, but it was mixed with poison. And a man came who wanted to live, not to die, who wanted pleasure and recoiled from pain, and they told him, Good man, this bronze cup of beverage possesses a good color, smell, and taste, but it is mixed with poison. Drink from it if you want. As you drink from it, its color, smell, and taste will agree with you. But after drinking from it, you will come to death or deadly suffering. Then he drank from it without reflecting and did not relinquish it. As he drank from it, its color, smell, and taste agreed with him. But after drinking from it, he came to death or deadly suffering. Similar to that, I say, is the way of undertaking things that is pleasant now and ripens in the future as pain. So this is the way that ignorance compounds with greed and hatred and leads us into greater suffering, greater delusion, greater confusion. This is sort of summed up in a, um, a quotation which I've seen attributed to the Buddha, but I can't find in the suttas anywhere. But whether the Buddha said it or not, it has a lot of wisdom. Thoughts give rise to intentions which express through actions, which are repeated in habits, which harden into character. Therefore, watch closely the thought and let it spring from love for all beings. So what we see is in these three levels of obscuration, there's the core layer of self, there are the afflictive emotions built on top of that, and then expressing through unskillful actions on top of that. And this is what creates the bondage that untrained human beings find themselves in. So I hope you'll get from this uh, accounting the kind of sense of the restless swirl of energy that comes out of ignorance. It swirls internally, and through this greed and aversion in relation to the world, we mix it up with all the elements of the world and swirl it with our actions as well. This is another quote from the Buddha. This samsara, the round of death and rebirth, this samsara is without discernible beginning. A first point is not discerned of beings roaming and wandering on, clouded by ignorance and driven by craving. So these two go together, the not seeing and then the craving the wanting, that keep us on this wheel, that keep us bound. So how does the path work? I think this is really fascinating. The path works from the outside in. It starts at the outer layer of unskillful actions, and then moves to the layer of afflictive emotions, and then moves to the false creation of self, down to the essential nature of emptiness. And this is reflected in the way the gradual path is commonly described as the practices of sila, samadhi, and panya, ethical conduct, meditation, and wisdom. So as we enter the path, the first thing we do, the first thing that people are taught in entering the path of dharma 
is the five precepts. Annie's going to talk about this in more detail, I think, tomorrow night. And so the beautiful thing is that the Buddha has laid out a very, very clear directive for us to clear away this outer layer of karmic obscurations, the obscurations brought on by unskillful conduct. As those begin to thin, that is a a level of development that's referred to as purification of conduct. And that's the area of sila. I'm not going to go into more detail on that tonight, but just to understand that that works on the formations of body and speech. That's the area of the precepts. That's the um, practice that uh, starts to undo those knots of karmic obscuration. But then we come through that and we still find internally the mind is stirred up with the afflictive emotions and the reactive impulses of greed and aversion. So the tool to work with that is samadhi. Through moment-to-moment attention to something that's actually happening, we undo the delusive nature of mind by connecting with reality as it is, and we collect the attention in the present moment, stepping outside of these forces that are looking to feed and sustain with pleasure and protection. Stepping outside those, collecting the mind, the mind attains a a stability in the present moment and a level of peacefulness. We come out of that swirl of the afflictive emotions and the reactive formations of greed and aversion. We discover that peace is available in the present moment. And it's the development of this moment-to-moment mindfulness resulting in a collected mind that starts to deliver us from the veil of the second layer of emotional affliction. Then as that weakens, as the Buddha said, tranquility is for the abandoning of desire. So as the force of desire weakens and we come into the present moment, then we're able to see more clearly. The mind is not all swirled up. We've Uh, worked against the grain of delusion to see things the way they are and that starts to open the door for wisdom. So the third factor of the path, panya or wisdom, starts to undo this fundamental ignorance grounded in the belief in self. We start to see with our wisdom eye all things are coming and going. Not just within the body, which we take to be me or mine, but outside as well. We see that Events inside and events outside are all held within the same kind of consciousness. Consciousness of external, consciousness of internal are all happening in just the same field. So this sense of a a belief in the absolute division between inner and outer, between self and other, starts to get chipped away at. We start to see all phenomena coming and going on their own, none of them to be taken as I or mine. And this was pointed to in that uh, beautiful teaching to Bahia, where the Buddha said, when you see in this way and you don't establish yourself in inner or outer, you will be neither here nor there nor in between. So the mind starts to become clear of this fundamental delusion of self and other, starts to emerge from the basic Um, level of obscuration or ignorance. This level is called the purification of view.
I think I forgot to mention the second stage is called the purification of mind. So sila deals with purification of conduct, samadhi deals with purification of mind, and panya deals with purification of view. Now we understand things arise and pass on their own. There is no one at the center to whom they're all happening. And as we understand that, a great letting go takes place. We see that the world is essentially uncontrollable. The strategies that we had for just collecting to ourselves continuous pleasure, pushing away from ourselves anything that is unpleasant, is basically futile. In the end, that kind of control doesn't work. And we see that the after effect of being so stirred up in this ceaseless self-referencing activity is basically more trouble than it's worth. We feel the burden of it, the pain, the exhaustion of constantly trying to feed and defend this poor self, this poor isolated self. But we find in ourselves the capacity for trust, for relaxation, for surrender with a full presence of what's true, not denying any of the arisings or any of the passings. And this is why the Buddha said that vipassana is for the abandoning of ignorance. We see the delusion of self and other. But this is not the final step. Wisdom has to take one more step before it's complete. And that is the penetration to the third noble truth. The Buddha taught dependent origination in order to show the creation of suffering with ignorance as its root. But he taught it even more importantly to show the end of suffering. Because as he said, with the end of ignorance comes the end of formations. With the end of formations, the other links also cease. And with that, so does the final link of suffering. So not only does avijja pachaya sankara, but the cessation of ignorance leads to the cessation of impulses, especially these untrained impulses of greed and aversion. So you can take a look at that too in your meditation experience. What is it like when the mind is filled with wisdom? When you're truly in a state of understanding and seeing the impermanent nature of things, seeing the selfless nature, seeing the unsatisfactory nature, what are the qualities of mind at that point? People describe it in different ways. There's some sense of peace. There's some sense of uh, spaciousness. There's a sense of non-clinging, a sense of release or freedom, a degree of courage, a willingness to open, acceptance, loving kindness, joy, interest. All these are qualities of the wisdom mind, or you might say the awakened mind. But for the awakening to to really take place, there has to be the penetration to the third noble truth. The third noble truth says that there is an end to suffering reached through the end of craving, and this is equated to Nibbana. This is from Sariputta, one of the Buddha's chief disciples. The destruction of lust, the destruction of hatred, the destruction of delusion, this is Nibbana. Or as the Buddha put it, this is the peaceful, 
This is the sublime. That is the stilling of all formations. That is, in Pali, Sabha Sankara Samata. All Sankaras go to tranquility. The stilling of all formations, the relinquishing of all attachments, the destruction of craving, dispassion, cessation, Nibbana. The Buddha's teaching on the Third Noble Truth was this Third Noble Truth is to be realized. That means his instructions to us as practitioners is your directive is to realize in your own practice the truth of the end of suffering, the end of craving, that is Nibbana. In our tradition, this direct realization of the element of Nibbana is what's considered an enlightenment moment. And when such a moment takes place, it's said that one has entered the stream. And then with further practice, further realization, full awakening is possible. In fact, it's said inevitable at a later time. So the key of this transformation is the direct realization of this unconditioned element or Nibbana. Sally and I were listening to teachings from the Dalai Lama this summer and in there in the Tibetan path he formulated it in a very similar way. He called it the direct realization of the ultimate nature of reality. Because Nibbana is the one element that is unchanging in our makeup, that is what's viewed in the tradition as the ultimate nature of things. So it is the direct realization of that that constitutes uh, this awakening. Now the Buddha, when he described this quality of stream entry in the suttas, tended to put it in this language. He said it of one for whom that event had just taken place. The spotless, immaculate vision of the Dhamma arose. All that is subject to arising is subject to cessation. So in our tradition, this realization of Nibbana has become associated with this term cessation. And most accounts of enlightenment report that some kind of cessation happens with stream entry at that moment. Some kind of cessation happens. So what ceases? At the very least, sankharas cease forming. There is the stilling of all formations. Sabha, sankhara, samata. All sankharas go to tranquility. In most accounts, there is the sense that the, the sankharas have ceased so completely that there is no possibility of disturbance in the enlightenment moment. No possibility of the mind being disturbed because the sankharas are so completely absent. And that's why this kind of experience often described with a sense of unshakable peace. Unshakable peace. This peace is generally reported by those who have discovered it as the highest happiness because the mind is beyond any need of feeding or protection, because it is dwelling in this peace that is beyond comprehension, beyond possibility of disturbance.
some beings have, have uh, realized this peace. Some beings have found it. And some beings can, can transmit it. I, uh, some years ago, I went over to Nepal to spend some time practicing with one of my Tibetan teachers, a, a young Rinpoche there named Sotni Rinpoche. And while I was practicing there, he had a visitor who was one of the most esteemed masters in his lineage. Uh, his name was Nyosho Ken Rinpoche. Rinpoche had taken up residence there but was not teaching. But my teacher said um, if I'd like to meet him, he would make it possible. And I said, uh, no, I, I don't need to meet him. I was sort of thinking, you've seen one Rinpoche, you've seen them all. But then I reconsidered. And I said, you know, if it would be okay, I would like to meet Nyosho Ken Rinpoche. And my teacher said, okay, I'll arrange it. So I was brought in uh, to his presence. He was sitting up, ready to, to receive me. And he was with his wife and a couple of attendants, and my teacher was there, and we just had some chat through uh, my teacher who translated. And uh, I was actually offering him uh, dana on behalf of a friend who knew him. And the moment came for me to offer, offer the dana. And so I went up and I made three bows to him, and I held the envelope out with my hands and reached up for him to take it. And as I reached up, I looked him in the eye. And as I looked him in the eye, something shifted. He seemed to go into his meditative state. And what I felt was his eyes moved slightly apart and then everything stopped. He became completely still inside. Looking into his eyes at that moment, I felt it wasn't accurate to say his mind had gone still. Rather, there was no mind there to go still or active. And as I was looking into that stillness, I just felt drawn further and further in, and I felt actually like I was falling into the unconditioned. I was falling into the stillness of the unconditioned. And then something came back in me, which was a sense of, of self. A ner I got nervous. I felt too exposed somehow. He was so, un he was completely unguarded, undefended, looking right into the center. And I felt exposed in his eyes. And it broke the spell for me. And then I must have drawn back, and then he went back into a more normal look, and the moment was over. I felt if I could have just gone on looking a little longer. <laughs> I'll just close with this quotation from the Buddha on Nibbana. One who is dependent has wavering. One who is independent has no wavering. There being no wavering, there is calm. There being calm, there is no desire. There being no desire, there is no coming or going. There being no coming or going, 
there is no passing away or arising. There being no passing away or arising, there is neither a here, nor a there, nor an in-between. This, just this, is the end of suffering. Let's just sit for a minute, please. There being no wavering, there is calm. There being no calm, there being calm, there is no desire. With the cessation of ignorance comes the cessation of formations. <laughs> 